If you want to go ahead and turn with me, you can, to John chapter 3. We've spent a month looking at different psalms, and we're going to jump back into our study of John chapter 3, uh, finishing up that, that chapter, and then we'll continue to move forward to the book of John for a long time. Um, uh, speaking of the summer that I talked about just a minute ago, in addition to me having an opportunity to preach, one of the other great things about the summer is uh, it's a chance to watch some good movies. And so since we've got a lot of kids in here this morning, uh, Big Church Sunday, glad you guys are here. Uh, one of the things that we did as a family this summer is we watched a movie called Cars 3. Any kids, fans of Cars? Adults too? It's a good movie. A good, good set of movies. If you're not familiar with the Cars series, it's basically about this uh, guy named Lightning McQueen. He's a very fast car. He's also got a little bit of bra- bragging and, you know, he's, he's kind of a proud guy. But we come to Cars 3, and I, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling some of this if you guys haven't seen it yet. But, uh, but he is now, by this point, a Piston Cup racing legend. He's won seven Piston Cups. Uh, but... He finds himself now starting to be overshadowed and passed by literally the newer cars. And, uh, and you can see this like kind of frustration that's on him. He's just, he's just overwhelmed by the fact that like he's being passed by. He may not be the champion any longer. And you can see throughout the race, he's just trying to hold on to things. And he's trying out, they got all these new racing methods that he can't figure out. And so he's like, what do I do? Where do I go? What would you do? Go to Thomasville, Georgia. That's where he went. If you guys don't know this, yeah, Doc McQueen, his mentor, he grew up in Thomasville, Georgia, and he's like, I got to go to Thomasville, Georgia. And I just want to give out a shout to, you know, to Thomasville. Like, it's a great town. Love Thomasville. Uh, in fact, I, I, I go there about once a month just to, just to uh, enjoy grassroots coffee. It's really good. And then I'll walk down Broad Street to the park and do some prayer walking there. And it's a really sweet, really sweet experience. So anyway, I digress a little bit. Thomasville, George, he goes there and uh, seeks out some counsel. And then we fast forward to the final race. And you see him realize, I can't do it anymore. I've got to pass the torch on to my young trainer, Cruz Ramirez. And so he does it in the middle of the race. Oh, man, I probably shouldn't have said this. If you guys haven't seen the movie, it's still a really good movie, even though you know the punchline. But they end up winning the Piston Cup. Uh, Now, have you ever been in a place like that where you feel like the race is kind of passing you by or the people are passing you by or maybe that thing that you've been working towards and that you've held on to for a long time, now it's like, ah, I, I can't hold on to it any longer. It's quite a humbling experience. And that's what we're gonna see in John chapter 3, as we jump back into the book of John, we're in a very real sense going to watch the torch be passed from John the Baptist on to Jesus. Up until now, John the Baptist had a very public sort of ministry. He's been baptizing lots of people and telling them to, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus' ministry up until now has been very private. He's had some conversations with people uh, but in his one miracle that he's done so far, he's, he's very reluctant to make his presence felt and make it public yet. Like he tells his mom, he says, hey, my hour has not yet come whenever he turns the water into wine. But that's going to change. And so we're going to see the change happen in this passage of Scripture. Now John the Baptist's following is beginning to dwindle 
His influence is starting to wane, and he's given away to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you're like me, uh, you might be tempted, and John might be tempted to hold on to his ministry, to, to, to hold on to those accolades, to continue to promote himself, uh, to clamor for approval, or maybe, on the flip side, maybe to start to just kind of sulk. And, ah, uh, oh, man, I, you know, I, I guess maybe I'm just not good enough anymore. But we don't see that with John. Uh, and John is going to invite you and he's going to invite me to what I'm calling the way of humility. That's the title of today's sermon, the way of humility. And he embraces it in such a, such a real compelling way. As I was reading this passage, I was super humbled myself and convicted by it. And so I'm going to ask if you would, if you would stand with me, if you are able and willing And we're going to read the end of chapter 3, John 3, starting in verse 22. uh, And this is what the word of the Lord says. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But but he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning, uh, as the psalmist David says, poor and needy. But we thank you that you are rich and that you meet all of our needs according to your riches and glory. And one of the biggest needs that we have this morning is to see you more clearly, to understand your word, that it would sink deeply into our hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work in us and through us this morning. Would you help us to walk the way of the humble? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And as you do that, uh, we're going to look at three things related to the way of humility. First, the way of, those who are on the way of humility, they see God's grace. Uh, second, they trust in God's plan. And then third, they glory in Christ. So first, 
God calls us to see his grace. Um, Earlier in John chapter 3, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. And then now we're kind of transported to another scene, the Judean countryside where Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. And and just to let you know, John 4 verse 2 says that Jesus himself didn't baptize, his disciples baptized. But the idea here is that people are beginning to follow Jesus. Jesus is gathering a following and they're showing they want to follow Jesus by being baptized. John and his disciples are doing the same thing. They're saying, repent, turn from your sin, and trust in the Messiah. And they are being baptized. And for some reason, this triggers a dispute between John's disciples and this certain Jewish man. We're not sure what the dispute was. We're not sure what was going on, but it it caused some sort of just, just anxiety or consternation or frustration or confusion among John's disciples. And so, so you, you see this conversation now happening that we're going to be looking at. John's disciples, uh, they come to him and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. You guys ever heard that phrase? everybody's doing it, you know? Uh, It's a 2,000-year-old thing that happened. It's not something brand new, by the way, parents. Um, But that's what the disciples are—it's obviously not accurate, but there's this feeling in which more and more people are going after Jesus, and his disciples are like, well, what what about our following? What about our crowds? What about our people? What are you going to do, John? Uh, and, and it may even be a little bit more biting than that. John, has, has your preaching lost its power? What, what's happening here? Is John going to take the bait? If I were John, I would take the bait. I would begin to get upset and frustrated and want to hold on to things. But that's not the way of humility that John pursues. Verse 27 A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. In other words, guys, you don't get it. All that I have is from the Lord. I can't take credit for anything. My preaching is from the Lord. My my love for people and, and the desire to see them come to faith is from the Lord. My zeal for the kingdom of God to come on earth the way it is in heaven is from the Lord. And all the people who have repented from their sins and been baptized, that's from the Lord too. It's not my doing. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all God's grace. Everything that I have is from the Lord. You guys convicted yet? (laughs) I have been. You know, whether it's our job or it's our academics or our ministry or our kids or our marriage or whatever it is that we have, we have a tendency to what? Think that we've earned it, to think that we deserve it and to hold tightly onto it because it's ours. We say, if it wasn't for me, the team wouldn't have won. Or, or if it wasn't for me, this project at work wouldn't have been accomplished. Or, or if it wasn't for me... I certainly wouldn't have gotten this promotion. Or if it wasn't for me, this house would be an absolute wreck. And I don't want to minimize all of those efforts that we contribute. But at the end of the day, John 
tells us that it's all of God's grace. Within our hearts, there's this kingdom of self that rages against the kingdom of God and his grace. And then when we start to lose things that we're holding on to, what happens? It gets ugly. (laughs) It gets really ugly. C.J. Mahaney puts it plainly in his book on humility that I highly commend to you. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Every time I claim to be the author in my life and take credit for the ministry that I have, which is actually God's gift, I commit cosmic plagiarism. It's a pretty big thing to say, and yet it's true. Every time I I hold on to things that that I think I've earned, I'm I'm committing cosmic plagiarism. I'm saying, well, it was me that did it. It's not you, God. But John the Baptist invites us to the way of humility and recognizing and seeing that it's God's grace. Everything that we have is from him. Uh, The famous inventor Samuel Morse, uh, he received many honors for his invention of the telegraph. And, uh, And every time he would receive these honors, he would respond in this way. He said, I have made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God who meant it for mankind must reveal it to someone. And he was pleased to reveal it to me. Could you respond that way? (laughs) I couldn't. Um, We hold on to things so tightly, don't we? We want the approval. We want the honor. We want the recognition. We don't see it as God's grace. We see it as our works, as if we've accomplished these things. Our family, our wealth, our reputation, all of these things, we have a tendency to want to say it's mine. Folks, if you want to pursue the way of humility, I encourage you uh, to just take some time And this week, ask God to give you eyes to see his grace. Um, There's a book, actually, my wife Julia has has been reading called A Thousand Gifts. It's an older older book now. It's been around for a little while by Ann Voskamp. And it's got some weird kind of language that's very poetic and maybe a little bit hard to follow. But the big premise behind it is that everywhere we look is evidence of God's grace. And she really encourages us to look for those evidences and to write them down and to be thankful to the Lord for what he has provided, even in the tough things of life, to see God's grace in the midst of it. So we could be like the Apostle Paul that says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. That's the way of humility, seeing God's grace. And as we do, it grows our gratitude to him and it humbles us. So not only that, not only seeing God's grace, but the way of humility also involves trusting in God's plan. Verse 28, John continues this conversation with his disciples and he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John says, this has always been the plan, guys. I am not the Christ, but I am the one who's to prepare the way for the Messiah. He probably recalled Malachi 3 verse 1 that says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And John the Baptist says, I'm that messenger. I'm the one who's coming to prepare the way of the Lord who's going to come into the temple. 
That's me. John goes on and he says this in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Uh, you know, John the Baptist's reference here is, is to this, this picture of, of, of God marrying his people. And it's been talked about throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. And John is saying, I get to be the friend of the bridegroom. I get to be the best man. I get to prepare the wedding. And now the wedding is coming. And I just get to sit back and watch. This is God's plan. He's content to prepare the way of the bridegroom. He doesn't want all the attention. He doesn't want all the accolades. He doesn't want all the glory. He's trusting in God's plan that God is going to lift up his son as the bridegroom, as the one who will marry his bride. Hosea chapter 2 prophesies about this, and John the Baptist probably had this plan in mind, this plan that would have been planned since the foundation of the world, and Hosea prophesies about it as well. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. In other words, the people were following after false gods, and God's saying that's not the way it's going to be. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. John the Baptist says, This has always been God's plan. God's going to marry his people. The son is going to be God in the flesh, coming to rescue his bride, to redeem his bride, to purify his bride, and to be married to his bride forever. And I get to prepare the way for that. And finally, John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. You probably have heard that before. It's sometimes referred to as the divine must. In other words, this is the plan. This must happen. This is the way it's been planned since the foundation of the world. The same language that's here talking about um, decreasing and increasing, it's, the, it's what would be pictured, the same language is pictured for the sunrise. As the sun rises and it shines over everything, and the glory of the sun shines brightly, all those little stars in the sky begin to fade And that's what John's saying. He's saying, hey, as the glory of the sun, Jesus, as he's rising, I am very happy to fade. My light to grow dim in the light of his glory and grace. For John, it's not resignation or fear or anger when he sees his light begin to fade. No, it's joy. It's joy. He says, this joy of mine is now complete. I have fulfilled my plan I have fulfilled my mission. D.A. Carson, uh, he says this. He says, John finds his joy not in begrudgingly conceding victory to a superior opponent, but in wholeheartedly embracing God's will and the supremacy it assigns to Jesus. Folks, this is not just the plan of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist would decrease and Jesus would increase, but it's the plan for all of us. But if you're like me, trusting in that sort of plan, that can be very difficult. Um, do you ever doubt God's plan for you? Do you, ever, do you ever wrestle with what God is up to? Do you ever try to hold on to your own plan and not entrust yourself to God's plan? I'm right there. 
that's why I have my friendly stool. In fact, I think I'm going to sit on my stool right now. Um, uh, back in January, I was, uh, I don't need to get all the details, but long story short, my back started getting bad, and I finally got an MRI uh, the day before the Haiti trip that you guys, you guys saw. And the doctor was like, you can't go. You have two bulging discs. And, um, and I was like, I'm still going to go. I'm going to go. This has been the plan for a long time. Like, we've been preparing for a long time. Um, I know Mike and Bonnie personally. I want to see them in Haiti. And uh, thanks to the wisdom of Rob and others seeking out their counsel, they're like, no, you, you can't go. I held on to that plan uh, with anger and frustration and bitterness. And God said, no, I have a better plan for you, Scott. I want Jesus to increase in your life. I want you to decrease. Your, your tendency to want to be, be held up in high esteem as the leader of the trip or, or your tendency to want to, to, um, to show your ministry value by ministering in Haiti rather than being behind the scenes and in, in praying for the team. I want to reveal that to you for what it is. It's, it's, it's self-glory. And in God's kindness, as hard as it was, uh, I can see God's grace in the midst of it. I can trust in God's plan that he's actually accomplished some really good things, as hard as it's been. You guys relate to that? It's not easy. I don't like it. But that's, that's God's plan for us, that, that he would increase and that we would decrease. Uh, I was really encouraged, you may have, may have read this, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, she wrote, um, a, a blog post this past week. Uh, it's been 50 years that she's been in a wheelchair. And uh, the, the post is entitled, After 50 Years in a Wheelchair, I Still Walk with Jesus. If you're familiar with her ministry, God has done amazing things in her life and through her. And I would commend, uh, the, there's a couple of different blog posts. One is on Gospel Coalition website. And I'm actually going to read a part of it to you here because it just hit me hard. Uh, she says this, she says, I was once the 17-year-old who wretched at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. What a difference time makes as well as prayer, heaven-minded friends, and a deep study of God's word. All combined, I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. The core of God's plan is to rescue me from sin and self and to keep rescuing me. I'm in constant need of saving. The process is difficult, but affliction isn't a killjoy. I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. The more, para- more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within. I can't tell you how many nights I have lain in bed, unable to move, stiff with pain, and have whispered near tears, Oh, Jesus, I'm so happy, so very happy in you. As I read those words, I was like, that's foreign to me. I don't know what in the world she's talking about, but I want it. I can't even begin to know the pain that she's experienced and the hardship that she's had to endure. 
I also can't begin to understand the, the pain and the, the experiences that you've had to endure through your life. But I, I, I am confident of this. While God's plan is mysterious and we don't understand it all, God calls us to trust in him because his plan is good. It may not feel good, but it's for our good. Uh, Romans 8.28, we often quote that passage. You know, all things work together for good, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But we leave out verse 29. And verse 29 defines the good that God has in mind. It's that we be more conformed to the image of his Son. That's the plan. That Jesus would increase and we would decrease. You know, John the Baptist's time on earth is going to close. This is really the, this is the last time we're going we're gonna to see John's public ministry. And we find out in elsewhere that John is still going to, he, he's going to be imprisoned and put to death. And we get a hint of that uh, here where it says John had not yet been put in prison. You know, John could have said, well, man, I'm giving Jesus up. In fact, he even kind of wrestles through this when he's in prison. He's like, Jesus, are you really the one? Because, you know, I thought you were going to bring your kingdom, and this is not the way I was expecting your kingdom to go. But I think at the same time, John would call out to you and to me. He would say, Jesus is worth it. He's worth the physical sufferings that he's apportioned to us. He's worth the pain for fighting for our marriage. He's, he's worth the cost of enduring a life of singleness. He's worth whatever it is that he's called us to. His plan is worth trusting in. He's better than a pain-free life or better than comfort or better than wealth or better than reputation. He is worth it. May Jesus increase in your life. May he shine more brightly through you and in you. May your joy increase as Jesus increases in you. That's what John the Baptist is calling to you and to me. And that leads to the last point. Um, glory in Christ, the way of humility. Uh, if you're pursuing that, that path, glory in him, glory in Christ. The last paragraph, we're not sure whether it's John the Baptist who's continuing on this conversation with his disciples or if it's John the apostle who's kind of referring back to this conversation and adding his own commentary to it. But either way, the point is the same. As you're being brought low, Jesus is raised high. Joy and contentment is found in the glory of Christ. Uh, I would highly commend to you, we've only got about 10 minutes or so to, to capture this paragraph. If you want to go deeper, uh, I, I would encourage you to go to John Piper's sermon on this passage. It's excellent. And I'm going to use his headings his, because they're really, really easy to remember. Uh, in this passage, we see that Jesus is from God. Jesus is full of God. And Jesus speaks and rules as God. And there's a lot of pronouns in here. And so I'm actually going to read the whole passage one more time. But insert Jesus for he, just so it kind of makes sense a little bit more. Jesus who comes from above all is above all. He, or John the Baptist, and really all of us, who is from the earth, who is of the earth, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he, meaning Jesus, who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For Jesus, whom God has sent, utters the words of God. For the Father gives the Spirit without measure. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into Jesus' hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. First, Jesus is from God. Uh, that passage, it says there's two, really two categories of people. There's one that's from above. There's one that's from heaven. And there's everybody else who's from the earth. There's one that's divine and everyone else is earthly. There's one who's perfect and righteous and holy and without blemish. And, and there's everybody else who's needy, who's frail, who's sinful, who's broken. And there's one that is sent to rescue the other. This is amazing too. Jesus, who is above all, humbles himself. He pursues the way of humility and says, I don't consider that thing something to be grasped, but I'm going to make myself nothing. I'm sent by the Father to rescue you when you don't see God's grace, you when you don't trust in God's plan, and you when you don't glory in me. All the times that you do those things, that's why I was sent. And Jesus, who is above all, he's now exalted at the right hand of the Father, receiving all praise and glory and adoration. It's amazing. Jesus, that's who he is. Jesus is not only from God, but he's full of God. Uh, Verse 34, Jesus, whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit, meaning the Father gives the Spirit to Jesus without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. It's a little bit confusing what's going on here. But what what John is trying to get across here is that Jesus has received the Spirit without measure, meaning without limits. There was this belief that the prophets of old, when they received the Spirit, they received it with measure to accomplish whatever purpose is there. In the same way, we receive the Spirit, but it's with measure. It's not limitless the way that Jesus receives it. As many ways as Jesus can receive the Spirit, he receives it. As much power and love and wisdom and truth, all of those things that come from the Father through the Spirit to Jesus, he receives it. And this passage here says not only that that the Father gives the Spirit without measure to Jesus, but that Jesus is also loved by the Father. And I think it has in mind here what's going on with the baptism. If you remember, Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends like a a dove and rests on Jesus' shoulder. And then the Father speaks of Jesus and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so the Father sends the Spirit, and one of the specific ways that the Father gives the Spirit to Jesus is that overwhelming sense of the Father's love and approval for him. And it just is without limit. Jesus, that's why I always said, Abba, Father, because Jesus experienced his love of the Father through the Spirit without limit. It's amazing. That's who Jesus is. And not only that, this is pretty awesome too. It says that the spirit that Jesus receives is that same spirit that we receive. And while it's with measure, it's still an amazing thing that the spirit does within us. Galatians 4 says that the father sends not only Jesus to us, but he also sends the spirit to us, crying out within our hearts, Abba, Father. Jesus wants us to know that we are adopted that we are loved by God, that the Father is pleased with us when we look to Jesus. Jesus is full of God, and all glory goes to him. 
Last but not least, Jesus speaks and rules as God. Verse 32, it says he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, not just on earth, but what he's seen and heard and known in heaven. It says he utters the words of God. So, so Jesus speaks like no one else. There's no prophet like him. He v- speaks the very words of life. He's full of truth and grace, and he promises goodness to all those who follow after him. And we can trust his words because he speaks the very words of God. He speaks as God, and he also rules as God. It says that because the Father delights in the Son, he gives all things to the Son. Jesus is the ruler, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and he's deserving of all praise and honor and glory and recognition. This is who Jesus is. He's from God, he's full of God, and he speaks and rules as God. J.I. Packer, uh, in talking about a humble heart, he says, the healthy heart is one that bows down in humility and rises in praise and adoration. We go low, and Jesus goes high. That's the way of humility. But if you're like me, it's a struggle, isn't it? Uh, it's hard to trust in God's plan. It's hard to see his grace sometimes. Sometimes we, we're just, there's fog that's there, and it's hard to see Jesus through the fog. But I'm, I, I think the invitation here is that, that as we see Jesus high and lifted up, that the fog would begin to go away. Um, we're reading a, a book by Jack Miller as a pastoral team. Actually, the pastors and wives are going on a, a, a vacation, or not vacation. <laughs> we're going on a conference. Uh, we're going to have some fun, but we're also going to go to a conference, maybe a couple sessions. Uh, no, and uh, we're also, we also read this book in preparation for getting together this week, this week coming up. Uh, it's a book by Jack Miller called The Heart of a Servant Leader, and it really rocked me, as I'm sure it did the other pastoral uh, staff and, and wives. Um, and, and Jack Miller, he was a a pastor, he was a church planter, he was also a seminary professor. And uh, he reached a real turning point in his life, and it's at the beginning of this book um, that it talks about this turn. He was, by all accounts and, and, and just from the outside looking in, he looked like he was doing really well. But inside, he found himself depressed, burnt out, uh, angry, and he turned in his resignation to both positions as a professor and as a, as a pastor. It seemed to him like, like nothing was going the way that he wanted it to. Uh, his church members, his seminary students, they weren't listening to him the way that he wanted them to. And so he finally said, I, I'm ha- I've had it. I, I don't want to do it anymore. But then, like a blind person who was given back his sight, Jack sees. He sees what's gone on. He says, I forgot the glory of Christ. Instead of being motivated by God's glory, I was motivated by my own personal glory and the approval of those that I was serving. He specifically says, I was so busy in ministry that I lost sight of God's word and spirit and desperately needed a conviction of sin that would lead me to see anew the power and glory of Christ's atonement. And when he repented of his pride he repented of his seeking approval of others. He repented of, of wanting, uh, wanting all, all, all of their adoration rather than Christ's adoration. It says, uh, he said, my joy returned in ministry. I took back those resignations and I served faithfully the rest of my life. And he had an amazingly fruitful ministry. 
It's amazing how, uh, you ever notice, like, when you put your focus on yourself and, and, and you try to hold on to it, that, that you think it would give you more joy when you're holding on to your own kingdom. But it actually, like, you become more miserable, don't you? I do. And yet I still want to hold on to it. But Jack Miller, he invites us to say, no, see God's glory, treasure Christ alone. And as you do that, you'll be given more joy. Um, he goes on, he says, you know, don't start with the circumstances of life to try to figure things out. Start with the glory of Christ. And as you focus on him, then the other things that are all around you, they, they begin to make sense at least a little bit more. And not only that, but they don't matter as much because Jesus matters the most. John the Baptist, John the Apostle, Jack Miller, and most importantly, Jesus invites us to treasure him, to see God's grace, to trust in his plan, and to glory in Christ. As we close our time, um, I want to look at one more time the, uh, the invitation that's here in verse 36. It says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John concludes this whole section of John 3 by saying there's two ways to live. There's one way of pride that says, I'm going to do life on my own. Uh, I'm going to live for my glory. I'm going to choose to live for my purposes. I'm going to create my own plan. And while that path, while that may look good for a while and joy may come for a little while, there's a warning in this passage that if we pursue that path and we don't trust in Christ, it will lead to destruction and ultimately to death. But there's another path. There's a way of humility there's a way of life and joy and peace that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. The wrath of God that we so rightly deserve has been laid upon Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says, I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and I want you to trust in me and I'll be rest for your weary soul. Don't keep going down the path that leads to destruction. Go down the path that leads to life, and that path is a way down so that I can be lifted up. I want to read to you a portion of a letter that Jack Miller uh, wrote to a missionary couple in Uganda as an invitation and prayer for us, and it's, it's so good. I just want to read it to you. Uh, this is Jack, and he's praying for this missionary couple. And he says, What I finally came to as I walked and prayed for you is the old, old story of getting the gospel clear in your own hearts and minds, making it clear to others, and doing it with only one motive, the glory of Christ. Getting the glory of Christ before your eyes and keeping it there is the greatest work of the Spirit that I can imagine. There is no greater peace, especially in the times of treadmill-like activity, than doing it all for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Think much of the Savior's suffering for you on that dreadful cross. Think much of your sin that provoked such suffering and then enter by faith into the love that took away your sin and guilt and then give your best work out of gratitude for a tender, seeking, patient Savior.
Four Oaks, may that be our prayer this morning. Let's pray.